0: in a Bible study that I've entitled, Kept by the Power of God. <clears throat> now you guys that are with us, you know last week we tackled one of the most difficult sections in all the Bible. Hebrews chapter six, verses four through eight. And we walk through it verse by verse, learning to appreciate the finished work of Jesus Christ in our life. And even though there's a lot of controversy and a lot of disagreement over certain texts in the Bible, We are confident to trust our lives and to entrust our lives to the God who cares and who loves us and who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, who also rose again to assure us of his finished work. We can have confidence in the Lord. And today, I want to share with you a couple of passages in the Bible that will help to support us in our weaker moments, in those times when... God needs to build our faith. Specifically, I want you to leave here today with the assurance of your salvation, that it is possible and that it is God's will for you to be assured and confident in your salvation, that you wouldn't be in a place of wondering and and I don't know if I lost my salvation, what happened to it, but rather knowing that you know that God, what he's started in you, will complete it. So notice with me in verse one of chapter one in in first Peter it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, verse four, and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who, verse five, are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this is a mouthful from a fisherman. (laughs) Peter was a fisherman, and yet he didn't shy away in his relationship with God as a teacher, as an apostle, to deal with the heavy things of theology, especially this issue of election. Election stumbles quite a few people, but it doesn't need to. He jumps in, Peter does, reminding us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been elected or chosen by God. And I love that. I love the fact, as I look at my own life, that I have been chosen by God. God chose me. I mean, that's an amazing thing. In my worst condition, I was chosen by God. Paul would put it this way in a different place. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It is God's sovereign privilege to choose us, and he did. Notice we find in Ephesians chapter 1 that he chose us from before the foundations of the earth And then from Peter we learn that God chose us according to his foreknowledge, which is very important. It is God's will to save based upon his foreknowledge of who will accept him. It's God's choice of us based upon his knowledge that we'll choose him. Now, God knows the end from the beginning. You and I don't have that kind of knowledge. We don't know the end from the beginning. We experience life in time, and just what's in front of us, or or a better way of saying that is we experience life through snapshots, one picture at a time, and we walk along a linear line of time. But God is outside of time, so he can see it all at once in his, we call that the doctrine of his omniscience, that God knows all things. God knows the whole story before it's written, so that in his foreknowledge, he sees the future as if it was today. And so God knows and sees all and chose us because of his foreknowledge, that we chose him. It's an incredible doctrine. Let me give it to you a different, jot this down. Actually, turn over, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want you to see this we'll put a couple of different perspectives on here as we lay a foundation on the significance of your assurance. Remember last time in Hebrews chapter six, there are those that would try to use chapter six to unsettle your souls, to twist it around, to take away your assurance. But that would be taking that passage out of its context and out of the context of the entirety of the scriptures. So notice with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter one Pick up with me in verse four. First Thessalonians one, verse four. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see this all over the Bible. And if you pay attention to it, you will see these two things in tension all the time. Number one, you will see the sovereignty of God. You see that right here in verse four. You see the election of God, his sovereign choice. He tells the Thessalonian believers, you guys know you were chosen. You guys know you were elected. And that's God's work. And then notice in verse six, they also received the word. They received the word, they became followers. That's man's choice. So you see God's choice and you also see man's choice. And they both exist throughout the scriptures. You have a choice of what some would call a free will. The ability to make decisions where you remain responsible for them. There's always God's choice and there's man's choice. God's action and our action. God's initiation, our response. And God's choice goes with you believing in him. And God made it so simple in the most popular Bible verse in all time you see the same thing. God's work, your work. God's choice, your choice. Where it begins in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's work, God's choice. So that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So you've got God's work, your response. God's sovereignty, your choice it's all over the Bible. There isn't a, there, 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 the problem with this is not that it exists in the Bible. The problem with this is that we don't understand it. The question always comes up, how is it possible that God is sovereign and yet we still make a choice? And it's in that tension that much frustration is born. The door is open to whoever, or in the Old King James, I always like that. I use that word uh, from the Old King James, whosoever, whosoever. The door is open to whosoever. And let me just say, not only am I, am I encouraged by the doctrine of election, but I am encouraged that God opened the door to whosoever, because that's a pretty broad opening, and that opening included somebody like me. I was a whosoever. How about you? You a Whosoever. You fit that context and that category. If you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, you're lost. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus would put it this way in John chapter three, verse 36. I love the simplicity of all the complicated difficulties in the Bible. Most of it's very simple to understand. And Jesus put it this way. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. You ever wonder now? You ever wonder if you're chosen or not? You sit around and go, I wonder if God chose me. I don't really know. Well, here's the answer to that. Because if you were to come to me and you'd say, Ed, uh, I don't know, am I? did God choose me? My answer to you would have to be, I don't know. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Then you're chosen. Well, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? No, I don't. Well, then it puts your question back in the category of, I don't know. Why don't you believe? And then you begin to answer. If you choose God today, then you can know that you've been chosen. If you choose God today, you're one of the elect. You see, the Bible never teaches. The Bible never teaches anywhere that God chooses some for salvation and God chooses some to damnation. The Bible never teaches that anywhere. That is a man made doctrine. God does not allow man to blame him for going to hell. The responsibility is purely on you and me. God's sovereignty does not trample man's free will. They both exist. Jot these down. Let me give you a couple examples in Acts chapter 2. They're all over the Bible. We've already looked at a few, but they're all over the Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, it says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's God's sovereignty. And then the scripture goes on to say, you, speaking to men, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. That's what man did. Man crucified Jesus Christ according to the predetermined foreknowledge of God. It's mind-blowing. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. That's man. When they heard the word of God proclaimed, they were glad, they glorified the name of the Lord, and then there's the sovereignty of God. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. You see, We must have a free will, which is defined as the ability to make an independent decision by which we are 100% responsible. Free will is necessary in order for us to have fellowship with one another or to experience a love relationship. Forced love is not love at all. Love is to be shared and appreciated and extended and received. It cannot be forced upon a person. We aren't merely controlled by fate, as many believe. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not the false teaching of fate. It's not a fatalistic view. God's sovereignty, as you see throughout the scripture, is flexible in operation as he adapts himself to the condition of human hearts. God condescends to meet us at our level. Imagine that for a second. The God of all the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things would come to our level in order to rescue us from our sins. And you say, Ed, where does that happen? Well, first of all, it happens all throughout the scriptures. It began right in the Garden of Eden where God condescended himself to his creation, creating Adam and Eve. It started right there. But the culmination of God condescending to our level, he condescends to our level without losing his deity, without losing his sovereignty, without losing his power, without losing his privilege. He loses nothing. He only gains relationship with those that turn to him. And the culmination of God's condescending to our level is found in the person of Jesus Christ, where God the Son left eternity and came to earth and took on a human body and walked the same earth that you walked. And remember, we learn in Hebrews, he's a high priest that what? Has compassion on us. Why? Because God met you where you were. And every religion has it upside down, don't they? Religion says, work your way to God. Work hard. Follow all the processes. Do all the rituals. And if you work hard, maybe one day you'll meet and you'll finally make it. And so many religions do not teach of an assurance of God's work, but rather make it dependent upon your work and work hard, and maybe you'll make it. But God comes in relationship and says, I finished the work I'm not going to make you come to my level. I'm coming to your level and bringing you with me. That's pretty powerful. I mean, that's encouraging. Because we are incapable of giving God to anything that would merit our salvation. It is only forever will be by grace. (laughs) Undeserved and unearned. And so Peter, man, he jumps right in. And he says, we're elect. We're chosen. The greatest display of God's ability And the greatest display of God's power is to come to us, to reach down to us. Let's go down just a little deeper as we come to the real heart of the matter. We're reminded today of God's choosing us because God wants you to remember this. In the whole world, populated with billions of people, even now, I didn't look up the latest number, but billions of people populating the planet today, billions, it's a number that our minds can't even really conceive. That you, by faith in Jesus Christ, are chosen by God. That you're not an accident. That you're not a mistake. That no matter what happened in your life, what family you grew up in, how you were conceived, what you've experienced, the pain that you're going through now, the difficulties that you're under, you have been specifically handpicked by God to be in his family. (laughs) That is pretty cool. To think that God chose you and chose us to be a part of the family of God. That there are countless people not experiencing a relationship with God because they have yet to bow the knee that God, by his spirit, it says in verse 2, is sanctifying us. And I know that's a fancy word, but we don't want to get rid of that word. It's a powerful word. And it means to be changed, sanctified, to be set apart, to be used in a special way. That you were once going in one direction, and now because of the sovereign election of God, and your submission to him by faith, you live, in a, life, you live a life that's set apart for the things of God. It's just, It's just... It's just hard to conceive sometimes, especially those of you that got saved a little later in life, where God allowed you to do your own thing for years, and you chose to do your own thing. And it was a very painful path and very difficult. And you look back and you go, Wow, God, you plucked me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. It could have ended really, really bad. But God, because of your grace, it's going to end very, very well and very good. I, sometimes I'm overwhelmed by it. You know, you guys, with the, with the exception of, of my wife and, you know, Henry and Maria were here from knowing me uh, before I got saved, there's not many people in this particular church that know the old Ed. And let me just say, that's a good thing. Because he wasn't a very good man. And he wasn't a very kind man. And he wasn't a very nice man. And he had no desire for the things of God. And we have the privilege, pretty much I also now, many, not everyone, but many in the church, I don't know the old you either. And that's just better than you not knowing the old me. That I didn't have to experience and we didn't have to experience it together. That together we can rest and be encouraged and be confident that we have been chosen by God. And we are a part of the body of Christ We are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That we can now walk in the newness of life and not the oldness of life. That we can walk in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of our flesh. That God has delivered you. That he has done the work in you. And that as we'll see in a future study, what he's begun in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have to have that confidence and that assurance. So check this out, verse three now. That was just the introduction. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Turn over to verse 23, same chapter. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so Peter's in this place, he just blesses God for being born again. (laughs) He blesses God for the new living hope that we have in Christ by faith. He's just overwhelmed by Bless God who saved us. Bless God that saved us to a living hope. That's the big difference, isn't it? We now have a life of hope. Hope for today, strength for today, hope for tomorrow. We've been born into hope, and it's the best description we have that God does. He gives a new nature. The phrase born again didn't start with Peter. The phrase born again came from Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 3, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke of this new life, and he put it outside of the realm of human ability Because that's what, remember, he was talking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus is all tripping out. He's like, what? I'm gonna climb back into my mother's womb? He says, no, 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 this is spiritual. This is a spiritual work. You're gonna be given new life. You're gonna become a new person. You are going to, to live in a way that glorifies God with his power and his dwelling inside of you. And it's a living hope. We're not hoping for death, church, we're hoping for life. You live in the hope of life today. We have hope in Jesus Christ. You know, when you're talking to somebody about difficulties in their lives, and you're talking to somebody about the the issues of their life and the perspective of God, it's important that you encourage those that are struggling. It's encouraged that that you remind the believers in Jesus Christ that are wrestling with issues in their life of their living hope, that everything that they're facing today is not hopeless, that they are saved by grace and that they are living in a hope-filled life. It's not hopeless anymore. Sometimes struggles and issues, mistakes, sinful mistakes, cause believers to really believe that they're not saved anymore. I mean, you can blow it so bad that your mind will play tricks on you and you'll just think man maybe i'm not saved after all maybe i lost my salvation but see the bible says that you have been born again to a living hope it never dies you have a hope that lives on into eternity you are safe and secure notice now verse 5 you are kept by the power of god i just want you to think about that for a second how do you know that you're saved and that you're still saved? Because God is keeping you by his power, not your power. Imagine if your salvation was dependent upon your power. How many times a day do you fail? Go ahead and throw a number out. Say it out loud, anybody. Eight? Eight, I think, is pretty low. Some of you don't want to give us double-digit numbers or triple digits. <laughs> you get my point. If you are kept by your power, oh man, it's all lost. I'm glad that Peter doesn't say, oh, you've been begin, gotten to a living hope, and it's all what God has done. Until you fail, then it's your power. And then you go in and out, in and out, in and out. No, no, listen, church. You are kept by the power of God. Circle that word kept. That, that Greek word kept means to be guarded. That word kept speaks of a fortress or a garrison. The idea behind that word kept is is that God has built a wall of protection around your relationship with him. He has protected you. That word kept literally means that God stands as a guard over your relationship with him. That it's his power and his strength. It, It speaks of someone standing guard over our lives It reminds us of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, where it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are saved. The unrighteous can't run into it and be safe. It's reserved for believers. It's reserved for those in covenant relationship with God. You run into the tower of God, his great name, you're kept there by the power of God. Psalm 91, verse 14. It says, because he has set my love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him and I will set him on high because he has known my name. Check this out. Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. You are kept by the power of God. And so when you ask the question as a believer, are you saved? Are you secure? You can answer that question, yes, and be sure you have been begotten again. Do you know that there isn't one place in the Bible where you will ever read of someone being unborn again? There's nowhere in the Bible. There's a lot of wandering. There's a lot of struggling. There's a lot of failure that's always matched by what? Forgiveness and a pursuing God. One that was, one that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who also teaches us, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But you never read of anyone born again, unborn again, born again, unborn again on this in the cycle, but rather you read over and over again of a faithful God, so much so, so much so, that the Bible says even when we are faithless, God just throws you away. No, it's not what it says. He says, whenever even when we're faithless, who's faithless? Believers. Even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. It's so comforting. Let me pause here for a second and say this. There are those that might listen to this and say, Now wait a minute, Ed, with that kind of assurance, then I guess I could just kind of live my own life, do my own thing. I mean, if God's going to forgive me and if I'm saved and you know, all I need to do is pray some little prayer, all I need to do is walk up the hall, all I need to do is raise my hand. If that's really what it is, then I guess I can just go out and live like the world. I can sin all I want. And I mean, if that's all really it is, if it's really nothing to lose, then I'm going to go live my life like nothing to lose. However, if you live your life like there's nothing to lose, you may have never gained salvation to begin with because that doesn't sound like a believer. A believer doesn't talk like that. A follower of Jesus Christ that has placed their faith in him and is born again has a new language, has a new mind, literally has a new life. And just for us as humans, because of this, God put a question in the Bible and an answer. So this wouldn't be a gray area. You know, as we mentioned before in previous studies, there are some things that are gray area. The matter of sin is no gray area. So that when Paul writes to the Roman believers, he asks this question. He says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And in the Greek language, he uses the absolute strongest word to answer that question. And it's translated into two words in the English in our our New King James Bible. He says, certainly not. A life of reckless, sinful behavior is not reflective of new life. It's not reflective of a changed life. It's very similar to a marriage relationship where you have two, two individuals, male and female, that were single. And we see this. Let me use an example as we've seen a few in our church. Older singles that got married later in life so they lived much of their life single. You know, they got an apartment here, an apartment here. Uh, they meet, they court, they date, they get engaged, they get married. And they stand here, perhaps on this stage, and they look at each other in the eye, and it's so filled with love, and tears are falling down, and everything, everybody's oohing and awing. And I always remind the guy, because I have more access to the guy when I'm doing a funeral, a funeral, well, <laughs> sorry. That was not on purpose. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wedding. When I'm doing a wedding, come back with me. Let me back into your life. Did I tell you we're going to be married 30 years next year? (laughs) Have I told you how much I love my wife? (laughs) Do you know that she's in the building right now somewhere? She might run out right now. (laughs) Teach me a few. Oh my gosh. Where Where were we? Two singles. Older in life. They come to the stage here for their... Wedding. That's how it's going to sound when it gets edited. (laughs) Wedding. And and I I spend time with the guy. And I always remind him, it's real easy, bro. Two words. I do. That's all you got to say. I do. Just look her in the eye and say, I do. And when each of them exchange their vows and they move in together, they can no longer live as a single person. They've made a new covenant. They have a new life. They are married if they choose to continue to live like they're single. Like, for example, oh, where are you going tonight? Well, I'm going on a date. A date? We're married. Well, you know, I want to do my own thing. That doesn't sound like a married person because a married person now changes their thinking. Now, in that simple illustration, think of it this way. God does that work inside and changes your mind. So, don't don't allow this doctrine of the assurance of your salvation, the the confidence that you can have, somehow twist in your mind that you can just go ahead and live life however you want to live life in terms of rebellion against God because you have chosen no longer to rebel against God and He's changed you from the inside out. Turn over to John chapter 10 now. Let me show you as we wind down because we really do need to wind down on this one. John chapter 10. I love this. Jesus is speaking here. If you're truly born again, you're secure in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Pick up in verse 22 with me, would you? He says, "Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in the Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said, to him how long do you keep us in doubt if you're the christ tell us plainly and jesus answered them i told you and you do not believe do you see that that's the sovereignty of god the free will of man who's responsible for their unbelief they are i told you guys god's sovereign condescension to their level i mean the messiah's eye level with them and their response you do not believe he says the works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And so you ask the question, how can I be a sheep of Jesus Christ? Believe. Notice verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them, mark that word, eternal life. Salvation is not temporary based upon your own good works. Salvation is eternal based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. I not only, he says, and he makes it clear, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall, mark that word, never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. There is great security in Jesus Christ. This is intended to give you confidence that Jesus is holding on to you with his everlasting power. You are kept by the power of God. As a sheep following Jesus, you are given eternal life and you will never perish. You hear the Master's voice. And I believe in a good summary I believe in the security of the believer and in the insecurity of the make-believer. Those that think they're saved or pretend that they're saved. If a person is playing games with the love of God, then there will be no security to you. You'll just never really know. Your life will be filled with frustrations and fears, anguish and anxiety. It is Jesus Christ, according to verse 28, that gives eternal life. He gives it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It, it doesn't make sense, does it? For God to give us eternal life as a gift of grace and say, "And say, here's life. Here, you're saved. Now, in order to keep it, continue to do good works because the minute you do something bad, you lose it. It doesn't make any sense. You see, it's, it, I take great comfort in the power of God to keep me, that no one can snatch me out of my father's hand, not even me. And parents, like this is such a... This is such a, a, a beautiful picture of the confidence that your kids have in you. Like right now, many of your children are being taught by, by the teachers in our Sunday school. They're taught the love of Jesus Christ at their level. Men and women that have dedicated themselves to teaching kids. And they're in there right now. And the reason they're in class and not with you is because they trust you. They trust you, Dad. They trust you, Mom. You know, they have that peace and confidence with them when they're with you. They don't worry about where they're going to eat. They don't worry about gas in the car. Your kids aren't worrying about the mortgage or who's going to pay the rent. Why? Because they trust you. They love you. Mom and dad's going to take care of it. You know, your kids aren't pacing your bed. You know, your three-year-old's not pacing in your room right now. What's going to happen with the mortgage? I don't know what's going to happen. I can't make the payment on the crib. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, and they, they don't see the bills. They don't care. Why? They trust you. They love you, and the reason why they're downstairs is because they trust you as you trust the teachers, and they're there, they're not thinking this way. It's not even something they have to worry about. There's not, you know, nobody's sitting down right there, I'm here today because I trust my parents. They're not. You have instilled in them, you have built in them that type of trust. How? By your loving care and service to them. It's not just because they were born in your house. It's not just because you adopted them. It's not just because your foster, you're, not, you're fostering a child right now. No, it's not because of the legalities. or It is because of a love relationship that your children have with you. And it's just very simple. They trust you. That's why, church, it's really important that you live up to the trust that your kids have in you. It's not some legalistic trip of how you live your life. Your kids trust you, and on top of that, they're following you. They're following your steps and your thoughts and your actions, they're learning from you. So that if they make some bad decisions along the way, they're doing it against the way they were taught. Because you taught them, you know how many times we've said, that's not how I raised them. Because you raised them in a way to honor and glorify God. I, I use this illustration a lot because I remember this. When I was, whenever I'd walk my kids across the street or in a dangerous place, most of the time I would just put my hand down, and they could grab my pinky, and they could just kind of walk along with me, and just grab my pinky, and we'd just be walking. And if there's no big deal, then they'd let go, and we'd move into the store or we'd go across the street. No big deal. And, and so the idea was, hey, hold my hand. And tell, so I tell my kids, hold my hand, hold my hand, hold my hand. So they'd go and they'd hold my hand. And, and that's how most of the time we would cross the street. Most of the time we'd go into the store through a parking lot. They would hold my hand. But what they didn't know is that if any sign of danger would come, any car comes screaming around the corner, any issue come up, then in a millisecond of time, I I could take my hand and whip it around and grab their wrist. Because they're not going to get away from me. Most of the time, it's okay to have that kind of, just grab on hold of me, grab hold of me. You know, sometimes you use this kind of language in your own life. Sometimes you, how you doing there? What do you say? Hanging in there. And the picture is, you know, I'm making it. I'm hanging in there. But it's in times of hanging in there where you find out it's not so much about you holding on to the pinky of God but him holding on to you. He's hanging on to you. You might just be hanging in there, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, he is holding on to you. And that's what brings confidence. It's not the confidence of our weak little grip, especially in difficult times, it's the confidence of God's faithfulness to hold on even when we can't. Even when we don't, we can have confidence in him. That's what Jesus said. No one can snatch me out of the Father's hand, not even me. God is so good. I was not saved by good works, church. You were not saved by good works, therefore you cannot be kept by good works. You were saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ and he's the one that keeps you. How? By the power of God. So I wanna take these last few minutes, if you're taking notes, get a pen out, get a piece of paper out, write it on your forearm if you have room write it on somebody's shirt, whatever you need to do. I want you to jot these down because I'm gonna give you 10 things. They're not the only 10 things, but I wanna give you 10 things that help distinguish a believer from a make-believer. 10 things that will help you see the progress in your own life and to look for things to progress in. Please don't use this list as a list of discouragement, but rather encouragement, that these are yours the instant you're born again. And they grow in your life. Number one, if you're a believer, you have spiritual life. Spiritual life. 1 John five eleven, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The Bible describes us as spiritually dead and darkened, aimlessly wandering around according to the book of Ephesians. But now, as a believer, you have life. You are no longer spiritually dead, but you are physically alive and spiritually alive. Number two, a believer is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. A believer is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This isn't just the mere fact of saying those words, Jesus is Lord, because an atheist can say that. That's not what he's saying, just to mouth these words. But rather, it's speaking of the significance of the relational aspect of Jesus is Lord. It's not just mouthing words. Like you now are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and you begin to live life in a way where you declare Jesus is Lord. You're spiritually alive. This is the same sensitivity now as you believe. It's not your conscience or the law of the land. Sometimes, you know, you'll talk to people and go, well, why don't you do that? Well, because it's against the law. You don't have those, you don't have those conversations anymore. You, you, if somebody says, why don't you do this? You say, well, you know what? The, my God, my Lord doesn't want me to do it. Well, wait a minute, it's not against the law. I know, but it's just, I, it's not for me. The Bible says not to do it. You're, you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not just your conscience, but your conscience has become alive now to the Spirit of God. Number three, number three, a believer has a desire to fellowship. As a matter of fact, a believer actually knows what that word means, that you want to hang out with other believers. You want to, you know, we, you want to go to church. You want to listen to Bible studies. Like, imagine that. Man, when I wasn't saved, the last place on the earth I would be is in a church. I had no desire. The last book I'd ever read was the Bible. Christian radio or music? No way. That wasn't a part of my life. But here I am now, 28 years later, and Jesus is my life. I don't just go through actions and activities. He is my life. And every aspect of it, he's invading more and more. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 that which we've seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowships with the father and with his son jesus christ we have fellowship the word means to share in common it's more than just having coffee together it's talking about thinking about and sharing the life of jesus christ with each other you actually not only do that but as a believer you want to do that which you didn't want to do that before number four A believer has a life of steady obedience. This is amazing to me. This is one of the most amazing ones. I mean, they're all pretty cool, but this one really strikes me. John chapter 10, verse 27, we read it. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And what's the response? They follow me. You have a steady obedience. And this obedience is not dependent upon Bible knowledge. Because the moment you were born again, you began to obey. Like some people think, well, you know, I'll become more obedient the more Bible I know. In, in some cases, that's correct. But I know that many of you here have never read the, read, read the Bible all the way through. Like, like maybe 2019 is the year you're finally going to say, I, this is the year I'm going to read it all the way through. But do you know that you have such a steady obedience in your life that you obey things in the Bible that you haven't even read yet? You haven't even heard about it yet. Your life has changed. And so you're reading the Bible, you go, oh, wow. That, that's something God addresses in my life. But he, I, I made that change three years ago. Why? Because God dwells in you. And certainly he uses the Bible to enliven us and open our eyes. But you're obeying things today that you never even heard a Bible study on. You've never even read it in the Bible. Or maybe you have read through the Bible, but it's been so long that you forgot about that verse. But the Holy Spirit hasn't forgotten And he dwells in you. We obey him and do the things that he says. It's not some trip that we have to carry or some burden. We're believers. We hear Jesus, we follow him. It's pretty powerful. Number five, and we've looked at this in the entirety of our study, but as a believer, a true believer has spiritual assurance. A make-believer doesn't. The Bible says in 1 John 5, verse 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You have assurance, you're kept by the power of God. Six, you have spiritual security. You know the door is locked, and the key belongs to God. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hands. The Father takes care of them. Number seven, a true believer loves what God loves. A true believer loves what God loves. Let me just review real quick. Number one, spiritual life. Number two, A sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Number three, a desire to fellowship. Number four, a steady obedience. Number five, spiritual assurance. Number six, spiritual security. And number seven, a true believer loves what God loves. You have a whole new way of looking at the world. And you find what God loves, you love. We have the love of God abiding in us. There's the Greek word agape. When you hear that word, it describes the love that comes from God. It's not a friendship love, not a sexual love, not a kindness love. It's a godly infused love in your life that you didn't have before. It's not the kind of love where I'm going to love that person. It's the kind of love that says, God, you love that person. So I love that person. And you trust him. Number eight, a true believer hates what God hates. You, probably one of the ways that you can see this the most in your life is that as a, as a believer, you can't watch the news the same way anymore. It just frustrates you or hurts you or causes great grief. And I'm not talking about all the political, whatever your political party might be, or what you agree with, not that stuff. This goes deep to the core of who you are. You know, politics is not gonna follow us into heaven, but the souls of men will. And when somebody's hurt, when somebody's taken advantage of, I remember recently, uh, not too long ago, watching the news. I mean, it's hard for me to watch the news because of what they report in terms of people hurting each other. It's just, this world has is, is just lost its mind. Uh, and 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 you know that's what you would expect in a world that's just eating one another and devouring one another. But it wasn't too long ago. I think it was here in Aurora, around here in the Denver area, where somebody ripped off a van that was modified for a wheelchair. Like like are you why why would you why would you steal something's not your, but but I mean this is somebody's life. They they cannot get around. I mean they have a hard enough time walking because of the whatever. Ha- but somebody ripped their van off. And I think in this particular case, they found it stripped. And I'm just like, oh, come on, man. I can say very much, I hate that. That's just wrong. It doesn't need to be against the law. Like, that's just, like, man, that's just wrong. And so a believer, while I might have been upset about that previously, or maybe I didn't care at all, now as a follower of Jesus Christ, I hate what God hates. People taken advantage of and hurt and ripped off. I hate it. Number nine, this is a good one. When there are spiritual disagreements with God, a true believer knows that God wins. So I guess you could just say God wins. (laughs) That's the banner of your life, God wins. So you know, you're kind of reading the Bible and you go, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like what he's saying here. And maybe before you never even read the Bible or before you're like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. But as a believer, you now yield to God. That's a significant change in many people's lives. Listen to what the Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 17. He says, wisdom that's from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. And then the number 10, because we're out of time, but number 10 is, a true believer longs for the return of Jesus Christ, where you didn't even care before. And now you're like, even so, Lord, come quickly. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. And so now you can see why I believe the Bible teaches the security of the believer and the insecurity of the make-believer, that God will take care of his own and help us through every situation. And I encourage you to meditate on this section. We've got one more study that's gonna build on this before Christmas, and then we'll pick up in Hebrews afterward, but one more study is going to build on the sufficiency of the salvation of God that you can have security in the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, Father, thank you for the privilege of your word, uh, for a church family that is loving and caring, one where we're growing in your grace and your understanding And we simply ask, God, that you would pour out your spirit upon us and that we would grow in your grace and in your knowledge. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for the doctrine of election, for enabling us to believe in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora.